This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Apples. Probably not even green level. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Fox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me, as always, is uh, my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. I mean, I guess not as always, uh, but Ezra. There are back. times when it hasn't happened. Yeah, Ezra. Ezra is back. Um, I enjoyed last week's Ezraless Weeds because then I could listen to it and not know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Such uh, suspense. I know. I learned a lot about immigration. Yeah, right. I mean, it was, you know, Dara was excellent. And, you know, it's you, you like to have a sort of a no spoilers podcasting experience. <laughs> right. but the twists and turns are, are really, I think, what makes this show compelling. <laughs> it's basically like cereal. <laughs> right. Right. The cliffhangers. It's like you want to know like what, what will happen at the end. Right. Uh, will Congress still be gridlocked? <laughs> Speaking of which, we had a State of the Union address this week. We did. It was uh, the, in the White House's parlance thematic. Yes. So this was Obama's final State of the Union. And uh, it is, by the way, amazing if you go online and you search pictures of his first State of the Union and has been and the one that happened this week because he's aged about 709 years. He really, really, really looks older. But it, it's his final State of the Union. And, you know, it's funny because I saw a lot of journalists snarking about this, but I thought – they actually did do it. The White House had previewed prior to the State of the Union, they were going to do less of a policy laundry list and more of a thematic look at where we've been and where we're going. And I think, you know, honestly, they, they, they pulled that off pretty well. It was a lot less of a policy laundry list. And it wasn't, I think, even really a speech writing decision. They have accepted that they are not going to get anything through Congress. There's not a ton they're trying to do through executive action right now. Their big executive actions like on immigration are largely stalled. You know, they were kind of trying to sum up this era in American life that they've been part of. And they did that in a couple of pieces. They, they, they split the speech into what was functionally a listicle form. And piece one was about the economy and where it's going. Piece two was uh, – I'm sorry, piece – what was piece two? Piece three was foreign policy. Piece four was broken politics. What was piece two? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was a kind of broader view about how Obama sees sees what's coming down the pike. And I thought it would be useful to focus at least for a moment on the fourth bit of it because I thought, I thought that was where Obama seemed in some ways most passionate and in other ways most frustrated. Obama has accomplished, whether you like these accomplishments or not, a, a really tremendous amount in, in American life. He will stack up just in terms of the sheer amount of legislation he passed through Congress. It was genuinely important and transformative, you know, among the, the really consequential presidents of the 20th century. But he did so in a way that betrayed his his initial rationale for being in America, for, for being in politics. If you go back to 2004 when he comes on the scene at the DNC or 2008 in his campaign, his theory over and over and over again – is it the divisions in American political life that are gridlocking Congress that are keeping things from getting done are largely illusory or they're being peddled by conflict merchants, you know, in American politics or punditry or special interests? And by special interests, which I, I think is actually really important to the sort of failure of this yeah. project is that he put a lot of emphasis, particularly as a candidate, on the idea that is very popular with the mass public that special interest groups and lobbyists are like 
the problem right. that is preventing problems from being solved. And he had a list of specific reforms on those points that some of them were, were done by congressional Democrats in 2007. He was going to refuse to hire people for executive branch Except jobs. when he didn't. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he wound up not <laughs> but, doing but, a lot of this. But, but this yeah. is correct. But so it's only to say that he had this very clear theory of American politics that he was going to bridge these divides and that was going to allow him to get things done. And ultimately, the irony of the Obama presidency is he got more of what he said he would get done done than I think anybody really could have expected. Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, the stimulus, the financial rescue, I mean, it, you know, opening uh, relations with Cuba, negotiating a, a nuclear deal with Iran, killing Osama bin Laden. There's been a, a longer list of achievement. And again, you, you can think these are bad or good, but they, they happened than I certainly would have predicted in 2007. But he did it not by bridging the divides in American politics, but by widening them. Obama is the most polarizing president we've had since the advent of polling. Although before him, the most polarizing was George W. Bush before George W. Bush was Bill Clinton. So there's clearly a structural trend there. And in many cases, he made decisions to prize getting the policy through, like passing Obamacare on a partisan vote or doing an executive action to try to move his immigration policies forward in ways that he knew would exacerbate these partisan tensions. And, and last night, at the end of his speech, he said, and, and he actually said that the most important thing he was going to say that night was that the American people needed to know that it, if they were going to get the future they deserve, if things were going to continue to get better, they would need to find a way to fix their broken politics, uh, that, that there was not going to be a, as bright a future for the country as there should be unless someone figured out how to fix politics. And, and what's interesting, I think, is that Obama really tried that and, and it didn't work. It, it, I think, if anything, actually discredited a very popular approach to how you would fix American politics. And I don't think he or really anyone else has a plan at this point. I think it's a great question that has been opened by the Obama right. era. And it's a question of like, what does it mean to be broken? Because like, if you look at Obama's record, you could like look at the policy accomplishments and say like, he did not have a broken presidency. He was the first president out of, I don't want to say dozens who have tried, because there's not that many presidents, but of many, every president of the 20th century has tried to pass healthcare and no one else has done it except him. I understand, you know, his arguments and you kind of get this common sense idea that, you know, we should have more civility and like more agreement and more of this common ground. But it also seems like the Obama administration is an example of how antithetical getting things done is to that. So if you look at the Obamacare, for example, like if common ground has been prized over policy, like we would not have a health reform law. We would just be where we were pre-2010. Right. We saw last year in 2015 actually a substantial amount get done on a bipartisan basis as well. And so – I'm a little maybe like less down than you guys are on the prospects for bipartisan legislating as, as a thing that you can do if the political forces are configured right. What to me is interesting about it is that even doing that does not actually lower the temperature. Right. And that like when George W. Bush was president, you referenced that at the time he was in office, he was also the most polarizing president mm -hmm. ever in terms of public opinion. But his legislative record was much more bipartisan than Obama's was. Twelve Democratic senators voted for his terrible tax cut bill. He got like two or three for his Medicare bill, but actually more telling they than could. that. They voluntarily didn't filibuster it when they right. could have. So, you know, it, it was this. No Child Left Behind is very bipartisan. No Child Left Behind was, was a Ted completely Kennedy. bipartisan. And not just done with Ted Kennedy, but I think it got 97 votes in the Senate, something like that. 
and then so with Obama, you had some very partisan legislating in the first two years, and you had some very partisan hostility to Obama when Republicans took over. And then eventually you had them sitting down at the table and doing a lot of deal making and, and getting a lot of things done across the aisle. But none of that has changed the fact, whether Bush was president or Obama was president, that the structure of American opinion is just incredibly polarized. And in a way, that opinion piece of it just seems really, really natural. You look back at these old polls where it's like 59% of Democrats think Eisenhower is a great president, but only 70% of Republicans think he's a great president. And you're like, well, what Like, what was he doing? <laughs> like, why, why, why didn't he do more stuff that Republicans liked knowing that it would alienate some Democrats because you would think a Republican president would want to do Republican-type stuff. Now, if you read about the Eisenhower era, it turns out he didn't really well, like well, Republicans. But, al but also the answer, I mean, you, you've written about this, but I think it's worth drawing out here, that is that it is a recent phenomenon in American politics that party polarization and ideological polarization have mapped onto right. each other. That you, you used to have liberals in the Republican Party used to have conservatives in the Democratic Party. So the idea of what a Democrat liked really changed if you're talking about a Democrat from Massachusetts or a Democrat from Alabama. And so that kept the parties from acting in really unified ways that exacerbated disagreement. And especially on the presidential level, the parties have gotten better post-1970s at making sure that they nominate presidents who stand for whatever it is that they stand for. I mean, well, Republicans are being a little a little bit odd this year. But you used to have things where, like, as a Hail Mary pass, Republicans having lost a million elections in a row were like, let's get this popular general, you know? Right. And, like, they just went with him. And then Democrats in 1976 uh, appointed Jimmy Carter, who, like, nobody knew anything about and had almost no record in, in public life. So you don't see that anymore. And it just seems to me it's easy to sort of cast aspersions on the ugliness of, of political discourse. But if you're going to have two parties, it makes sense for them to stand for distinctive things. It makes sense for them to nominate presidential candidates who espouse their party's agenda. And it makes sense for them to disagree rather vehemently about the content of things. What strikes me as dangerous is the dynamic we had in 2011, 2012, and to an extent in 2013, where it sometimes seemed like Republicans in Congress would prefer to disagree more than they would prefer to advance some aspect of a conservative agenda, that there was a kind of a, a principled unwillingness to do a deal. But they got over that. Obama got over that. And they've been doing things where, where they disagree. They don't like each other. They don't agree with each other's agendas. But like most groups of people, they have sort of different ranked orders of priorities and can usually swap things, work things out. We haven't had these kind of weird debt ceiling blowups and, and things like that. And, and it just it actually strikes me as a situation that is more OK than Obama made it out to be. Let me actually make the case not for pessimism here, because I think there's a lot that I agree with in what you say, but that a closer read of the Obama era can reveal something a little less rosy. So on the one hand, as Sarah says, he gets a tremendous amount done. But really, Obama's legislative achievements happen in the first two years of the presidency. They happen very, very, very fast. And they happen because a massive financial crisis combined with a totally catastrophically unpopular and mismanaged war create a Democratic Senate majority that attains for a kind of brief moment, five months, a supermajority in the U.S. Senate. And that basically never happens in American politics. The last time any party had 60 or more in the Senate had been in the 70s, a really, really, really long time. And not a constellation of 
events you actually want to have happening very often in American politics, right? The, the things that get you that kind of majority in a political system like this one are not are not good things to have. So absent that, I think you see the major accomplishments of the Obama era get wiped out. Then, you know, you go to sort of what Matt's talking about more recently, which is we have had a very, you know, or at least a reasonably productive congressional 2015. And what I think has been interesting about that 2015, and, and we've talked about this on, on previous episodes of the show, which you should download, listen to, and review on iTunes, is that those issues were done in a way that left as little time and room as possible for the public to be part of that process, that the kind of innovation insofar as there was one was that it was possible to pass legislation, but only if Obama stayed out of it, only if it stayed off of cable news, only if people basically didn't know it was happening, and only if the two parties weren't polarized on it to begin with. And so the idea that you can do bills that are nobody's top priority or anywhere near their top priority, it's true, and I think it's a good kind of pressure valve on the system. But I don't think it helps us that much in terms of some of the, the – generally the big priorities and, and because they're big priorities in American life, they're controversial. I mean immigration here being a, a pretty good example of something that at some point it really felt like both parties wanted to get done and, and very much couldn't. But I think healthcare is going to normally be in this category too. I think a lot of things that really matter are going to be here. And so I think on the one hand, if you need a the, the sort of majorities we saw in 09 and 10 to get anything done – you're just not going to see that very often. So the, the bar to getting big things done is going to be too high to virtually ever be cleared. Uh, although to push back on that yeah. a little bit, like one thing I look at from the last year that I thought was a big deal, obviously because I'm a healthcare nerd, is this big Medicare reform package that was passed that actually was able to fund Medicare, which is something they've been trying to do for decades with DocFix and any re any listeners of this podcast will be familiar or you can go back in our archives as Ezra suggests, is an issue you know, I kind of go back and forth on how to think about it. You know, on the one hand, it was a bit more in the weeds than Obamacare than handing out insurance cards. On the other hand, you know, it it could have been a polarizing issue. Like there was space. It's a big health care issue. It's lots of money. It's how we structure our health care system. So it seems like you, you do at least have one example of a health care issue that affects a really big part of our health care system being able to move through the system in this I, bipartisan I way. So I agree with you on its importance. Importance, but I don't agree with you that it kind of counts as important to most people. So I think this actually goes back to something Matt said a little bit early on, which is that Obama had argued in his 08 campaign that a real big obstructor of progress were special interests. And I think what we're seeing right now is that the kind of thing that can occasionally get done are issues where special interests are the only ones who care on yes. some level and, I think and are going to drive yes. this through. So the, the Medicare doc mm -hmm. fix is a very big deal to the medical, to the hospital industry, to the doctor lobbies, to, to all them. But but most people have never fucking heard of it in their life and, and never They're will. missing out. <laughs> and then I think, too, like the big tax bill that gets passed a couple, not, not long ago now at all, maybe a couple weeks or a month, that's $700 billion in tax cuts. And it, it marries a lot of corporate lobbying with groups that focus on poverty reduction. I think that if either of these policies had been done in a way where they were out in the public debate for a couple months, one, they would have died, which is a problem. But two, I just think that they do not have dynamics that are generalizable to something like 
an overhaul of of education or tax reform or the things that you know some of the some of the bigger picture uh, topics that you're going to need to have a process that involves the public and on some level like I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that the way the only way to legislate in a country this polarized is to basically make the deal on Thursday pass a bill on Friday have it done on Saturday well, so I agree with you except I'm more comfortable with that and I, I to me I feel like that was Obama's problem here he says in the speech and he also says in private, and if you talk to his team, they, they all profess to not know the answer to this. But the fact is that they do know the answer. And you see that they know the answer because they've been doing it for the past year, the past 18 months. And the answer is you try to keep the public disengaged. You try to make a deal with the stakeholders. You try to seal it all up in secret and you try to get it done fast. It works fine. It's just not something that they are comfortable with. So they don't want to say, like in the State of the Union, like, you know, I wanted to transcend the differences that divide us. And it turns out that the way to do that is to encourage you guys to not pay that close attention. That I'm going to keep giving a lot of speeches about gun control, which is like if you look in a textbook for an example of an issue that like has a lot of sound and fury relative to the actual policy significance, they'll look at my gun proposals. So we'll just like keep talking about that, keep talking about that, keep talking about that. And in the meantime, legislate on, on all these other fronts. But like, like Ezra was saying, these aren't like big ticket issues like let's say like Obama like really wanted to make like a Medicare reform speech like I, I don't know that it's you know you can think about the White House not talking about it as much but it's also like is the public even interested like like they're legislating on issues that are going to be of less interest to the public well sure you know, like, but you know that's great the public's right. ideas about what's important how, how does are this very fit? How, does, how does your relative optimism here fit with your sort of america is doomed cuz well, cuz for for those who don't know and you should you should go go to the google machine search vox american democracy is doomed and you you'll find a great a really great piece from matt about sort of fundamental tensions in the american political system that in his view are going to lead to a constitutional crisis. One reason why I am relatively upbeat about 2015, I think, compared to other people, is you have to do the, the level setting correctly. Right. And my, my prior coming into this was that it was not possible to bring back the kind of transactional politics that could make highly polarized parties work. I think that may still be correct. The particular circumstances of 2015 were a little unusual in terms of John Boehner sort of looking to get out the door, Barack Obama being a lame duck, Harry Reid looking to retire. I mean, we may not be able to bring back the glorious spirit of, of backroom deals that, that made that work. But I do think that relative to the alternative, which is ultimately guns in the streets and, and stuff like that, it looks pretty good. But I think we sort of want to discuss that on another time. I, I wanted to try to talk about another aspect of, of Obama's legacy, which is that he he proclaims this process stuff to be his big regret about his time in office. And I always find that to be a little bit self-indulgent. When hmm. he was new in office and the economy was collapsing, his team, his Council of Economic Advisors, put out a report making the case for their stimulus bill. And it warned that without the stimulus, unemployment would go as high as 10 percent and it might linger as high as 10 percent for like a year. And then it would eventually come back down, you know, within a, a three, four year time span. The actual outcomes we got with the stimulus were significantly worse 
than the no stimulus scenario in that report. And the cheap shot you can take at the administration is like, lol, stimulus failed. If you know the story, you know that what happened was is that the data that they had there got revised down. This report, it's just worth saying, came out during – this was done during the transition. Yeah, during the transition. This was done, you know, right when things began. The bottom began to fall out of the economy. Exactly. So it it turns out the actual situation in the fourth quarter of of uh, 2008, it was, was much, much worse. Right. If I remember the numbers here, they thought the GDP. He was shrinking at negative three, and it was actually in the neighborhood of negative nine. Yeah, it was. It, that's the ballpark. So, which is fucked, right? So, <laughs> it was terrible. So, so you don't. I don't want to cast this as like, like, ha ha ha, like they screwed up. You know, like you get it. But the point is, is that as a matter of political rhetoric, right? What they were putting out there was that ten percent unemployment and then lingering above eight percent for years was an obviously unacceptable outcome. That was meant to be a knockdown argument in favor of taking further action. But that's what they got. And so you can litigate this question with veterans of the administration in various ways. Was there any way to get a better stimulus? Should they have been aware that they're systematically correlated over optimism from early GDP reports during recessions? Uh, I think maybe someone should have looked that up. Even if you think they were blameless, that they did – and I, I think this is a, a sort of odd – like if you if you talk to uh, people who were involved at the time, I mean they will seriously insist to you that there were zero tactical or strategic errors that were made, that there was literally nothing they could have done differently to get like $3 more of stimulus in there, which just seems inherently implausible. Like, I, 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 having talked to a lot about a lot of them about this, I don't think that's a totally fair characterization right, of position. But at any rate. I think, they, I think they would argue that they were a pretty close to the edge of the possible, that, that there were decisions you could make that would have been different, and those decisions might have paid off a little bit, they might have backfired on you, but that they really feel that they got to a first approximation what you could get out of the political system. Right. But even if that's true, Barack Obama's big regret about his presidency ought to be that millions of Americans spent years unemployed, depressed. I and mean, the impact on people's well-being from that kind of thing is awful. I mean, not just in material terms, but in psychological terms. And it has had an obvious scarring impact on the public mood, not because pundits on television are like saying bad shit, but because really bad stuff happened. And they treat it in their rhetoric. And I understand why this is their mentality as like an example of how awesome they are, because they, as a group of policy wonks and political leaders, were dealt this really terrible hand. And it's true, right? I mean, like relative to other newly elected presidents, Obama was dealt a really shitty hand. But relative to the average American, Obama's hand was fine. He was president of the United States. You know, lots of people lost their homes. I like Barack Obama a lot. And I think that the average journalist sort of like underrates Obama. Obama and his presidency. But I do really feel that like Obama himself and the members of his team kind of overrate his presidency by kind of like yada yadaing past this and comforting themselves with the thought that the European Union is even more screwed up, which doesn't make any sense to me. I think there are two things worth saying on that. I, I definitely think there's quite, you know, something to it. But but the two things I'd say that that are worth thinking about from there as understanding their worldview is one, and this goes to the issue of level setting, at this point, they look back at the data 
And they, they look both at the European Union and, and sort of other developed countries during the financial crisis, but they also now look a lot back to the Great Depression, which the collapse in magnitude was on the order of what created the Great Depression. And they they compare it to that. And the really hard thing about having discussions about Obama's record is that it is continuously a question of what do you think is the true counterfactual? What do you think would have been possible if we had done more or what do you think would have been possible if we had done different policies? They make the counterfactual the Great Depression, which they feel really good about. Another version is making the counterfactual Europe, which I'm always a little skeptical because Europe had this sort of Eurozone currency issue that we didn't have. So the fact that they've done worse than us, I think, has um, factors that, that, that we don't get uh, credit for. But I do think that the financial rescue played out better than most analogous efforts in history have. But I do think that when, when Obama says and when the folks in the administration talk about American politics this way, I think to a degree you're underrating that's what they're actually talking about. The reason that they have developed a deeper kind of political pessimism is that they feel that under and, – and they worry that, that under any kind of reasonable working political system, they should have been able as the data worsened to do more that they should have been able to work with Republicans, that, that when Obama came in, Republicans should have been eager to work with him on a stimulus. A lot of them had stimulus plans themselves, and in the end, not a single House Republican voted for the stimulus. And, and to them, the problem in American politics that, that, that they've kind of uncovered is that even in an emergency scenario like that one, even in a place where the bottom is falling out of the economy, you have a new and popular president who's pretty untouched by the fights of the last couple of years, Opposing Obama was in many ways a more salient political incentive than kind of joining in on the recovery effort. And, you know, and, and to be fair to Republicans here, they believed in, in many cases due to longstanding beliefs they held and in some cases due to brand new beliefs they found that what Obama was doing was, was bad, was problematic. There was, for instance, a lot of deficit concern then that there's all of a sudden not now, even though it made more sense to run a deficit then. And so I do think that there is a real connection in the Obama administration's thinking between this issue of they were not able to break through the politics and their policy failures. Because I think that this is a group of people who have a lot of technocratic confidence that they have the right answers. And their view of what went wrong insofar as things went wrong is that they were not able to find the right answers for how to unlock a political consensus necessary to put those answers into play. Once a lot of the data came in, I think you and them have, you know, not exactly but broadly similar ideas of what should have been further done to help recovery. But they felt that there was nothing they could have, that there was nothing they were able to do in the political system, that more stimulus and so on became at a certain point, you know, basically impossible. And so I, I think that that is something they don't explain very well because of this kind of tension between celebrating their policy achievements and bemoaning their political failures. They sort of keep these two things separate so as to not muddy the message. But I think the real version of the political critique is not just that it's sad that people are arguing, but that it's dangerous that we can't come to agreement even in crisis situations where where action is action is really paramount. Yeah, I mean, you could see similar things in Obamacare where you have we haven't done many health insurance expansions. Like we don't know how many people it's supposed to cover. They were really excited in the State of Union last night that it's covered 18 million people. Kind of brushed aside the fact CBO said it should be covering more like 28 million people right. at this point. So you have like this yawning gap that kind of gets brushed aside. You have governors who are not expanding Medicaid, who you know the Obama administration would say. And again, that's also these are 
people who are like literally are not able to pay their health insurance bills right now because of decisions that are being made. And you have the Obama administration with the view, like, we know how to fix this. We obviously have our ideas and this gridlock around it. I wanted to switch gears a little bit again, though, to think about in terms of the Obama legacy, what it leaves behind for whoever comes next. And one of the things I feel like I see, you know, Obama says in his State of the Union that one of his big regrets is that this lack of political unity, it doesn't seem to be a regret that many of the candidates care too much about. I think, you know, if they look at the Obama legacy, you don't see much talk about reaching across the aisle. You don't see, and obviously we're in the primary season, maybe that will change as we shift into the general. But I think it's pretty fair as a candidate to see if I want to get policy done, the way to do that is not through these deals that like, you know, we'd see like in the 90s, that it's through, I guess, getting a supermajority through these backroom deals of 2015. But it seems like the lesson they're taking away of like, what can I learn from the Obama presidency is drill down on my side and talk less about, you know, these big collaborations. So I think this is actually a really interesting theme or, or sub-theme of, of the 2016 presidential campaign. I think you're right to pull it out. On the one hand, I think you have Republicans who believe correctly that if any of them are elected, it will only happen in a context where they hold the House and the Senate. Now, they won't probably hold a supermajority in the Senate, so they'll be subject to the filibuster. But the filibuster has been weakened by Democrats in, in 2013. Republicans can always just get rid of it entirely if they so choose. There is this thing called the budget reconciliation process, which keeps getting expanded in which a lot of Republican policies on taxes, on reforming Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid, all that could go through budget reconciliation. And, and that only needs 51 votes. So I think to, to the Republican candidates, it is not at the moment a particularly salient concern because if they plan to govern as Obama did in 09 and, and 10, based on party line, aggressive party line votes. Right. I think the Democrats really do have a problem here because they know they're not going to get a Democratic House. And so what you have, and, and Andrew Prokop, our colleague, just came back from Iowa and wrote a really great piece. We'll put it in show notes about why he, why Bernie Sanders really looks like he might win Iowa. And a really smart point Andrew makes in there is that Bernie Sanders has picked up a particular strain of critique of Obama that a lot of Democrats have, I think particularly in the media, forgotten a little bit. And Sanders keeps talking about a political revolution. And the basic thing he is arguing is that what happened to Obama's presidency and and the reason many liberals feel that he betrayed the promise of that presidency is that he ran as, you know, the greatest political organizer in recent American history, right? No other presidential candidate had been able to create, mount, and sustain such a phenomenal organization that involves so many new entrants into the political process. And then he got into office and he became like the legislator in chief as opposed to the organizer in chief. He went into an entirely inside game. He was negotiating with Congress, making backroom deals, not trying to create public pressure using this kind of massive organizing for America group that he had. And Sanders is saying that real change only comes when people are involved and that, you know, he's going to create a political revolution by never ceasing to organize. He will not go like Obama did and become the inside game player. I think that is a, it is an unlikely scenario. I, th- I think there are reasons that probably wouldn't work, going down to the fact that a lot of support for Democrats is not in places where Republicans get their votes, right? Gerrymandering has made this pretty asymmetric in terms of who you can organize and where. But it's working against Clinton because Clinton doesn't have an answer on this at all. The sort of implicit answer is that Hillary Clinton knows how the system works and is sort of more 
battle hardened and cynical and jaded and aware of these issues than Obama was when he came into office. But saying you can master a broken system is not a is is Andrew argues not a very compelling thing to say to Democrats who don't want eight years of the last four years, right? Who who want early Obama, not late Obama, in terms of what is happening in Washington. And and Clinton has not been able to come up with an answer on that. Let's set this up properly and, and talk about the campaign that's that's emerging because I think if, if you're not following this, I think a, a lot of people have been mostly reading about the, the Republican campaign because it's um sort of awesome. But Bernie Sanders has been slowly but surely rising in national polls. He's from Vermont, so he's always polled really well in New Hampshire. And now he's ahead in some polls in, in Iowa as, as well. And people are thinking, well, he might really win Iowa. And while I still think everyone, I mean, I, I think the Sanders campaign would agree that they are underdogs in this race. You know, if you win Iowa and then you win New Hampshire, Who's to say, right? I mean, it's it's worth thinking about. And the Clinton campaign is taking the Sanders challenge in a notably more serious way yeah. over the past couple of weeks. They used to have a campaign that was very focused on Hillary and on talking about Hillary and on speaking to the groups that they thought were going to be enthusiastic about Hillary. But now they've started talking about Bernie. They are hitting him from the left on guns. They are doing a, I think, clever and policy sophisticated sort of left-right combo jab on him on bank regulation, arguing essentially that his break up the banks plan is it sounds tough, but that it's a little bit simplistic and it actually leaves out huge sectors of, of the financial system, which is, I think, a, a good way of making the argument that they want to make, which is that she is a more experienced, more sort of savvy, more knowledgeable operator who, even though her position in a sort of schematic way is more moderate than Sanders's, it actually does more and covers more and reflects a better understanding of the situation. They've also attempted a similar move on healthcare in a way I would call less persuasive. Um, so Sanders is an advocate of a single-payer health care system. He characterizes a Medicare for everyone system. We've talked about this idea before on the show. There are reasons to think this may not work in the United States or, or, or could, be, could be unworkable. It's certainly politically unlikely. But the argument... Chelsea Clinton made this argument most directly, is that this means that Sanders wants to repeal Obamacare and repeal Medicaid and get rid of S-CHIP. And that the children's health insurance program. Yeah, and that it opens. And get rid of Medicare. Right. That's also And private insurance. insurance. Right. All right. Insurance. Get rid of Medicaid, get rid of private. So, so and give Republicans, and she said, and this is an important right. piece, right? Right. So some Give of Republicans that is, permission to get rid of all that. Right. Exactly. So here we're going from, there's elements of that that are technically true, like the state children's health insurance program really would be eliminated and really folded into Medicare. Right. So, like, that's true. Getting rid of Medicare, like, that's just false. But the big idea here is that s instead of Sanders coming in, proposing this bill, and then it just sort of dying in Congress, because why would Republicans <laughs> vote for that bill, is that Sanders is going <laughs> to collaborate with congressional Republicans to scrap all these programs, because Sanders and Republicans both agree that those programs are, are not optimal. But Sanders has, like, a, a long record in Congress. He voted for Obamacare. He voted for S-CHIP. He's voted for Medicaid many times. You can get into sort of arguments with them about the logic of this, and in a kind of, like, like a 
debater's trick kind of way. I think they score some points, but in a like, who are you kidding way? Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Like, I spent this morning, there'll be a story on Vox.com by the time this podcast it's is released. It's a hell of a website. It's a great website. Yeah. You could read this story very soon. But I've been emailing with the Clinton campaign about this this morning. And, you know, the thing they'll refer to is Sanders had a 2013 single payer bill that kind of, it looks really similar to the Canadian single payer system where each state runs their own plans. So you'd have like a Massachusetts plan and Rhode Island plan. And just like Canada has, uh, I'm sure, why do I think this? Like everyone knows this, but Canada has like an Ontario plan and a Quebec plan. And um, I think it is so funny that you think everybody knows Canada course. has an Ontario plan and a Quebec plan. Like, I mean, I like as if that's the most natural piece yes. of it. Like, whatever could have come out of your mouth after like everybody knows this, I was not <laughs> expecting Canada Anyways. has an Ontario so plan we, and so a Quebec plan. So in Canada, the federal government provides funding <laughs> yes. for health care. As everyone knows. And it, sets, everyone? and it sets sort of minimum... <laughs> Minimum standards, yeah. right? So it's like right. your plan has to accomplish certain But, like, let's objectives. say, like, Saskatchewan wants to cover dental care. Now I'm just going to name fun Canadian <laughs> provinces or Nunavut, the great territory to the north, is really into vision. Like, they could stack that on top of it and, like, customize right. it a little bit. So, so the argument, you know, that the Clinton campaign was making to me today over email was like, well, look, you know, with these state-based plans, Republicans have refused to expand Medicaid. And like it's a, it's a kind of bizarre theory, as Matt mentioned. But I, the theory they seem to talk about is one where Sanders and the Republicans would collaborate to pass this bill, and then Republicans would say, "Aha, I've got you," and not participate. However, you know, one kind of flaw in all this is there's a fallback. If the states don't do this, the federal government, much like they do with healthcare.gov, steps in. So, and I actually think it's useful to look at this for a minute because you do get a lot of political attacks of this kind of trying to trick the rubes form, mm-hmm. which is fundamentally, I think, what this is. Which is one issue here is that if you look at that plan, there are minimum standards, much like there are in Canada, as everyone knows. As everyone knows. And so you have to do something. Obamacare has this quality already. I don't think most people do know this, but starting, I believe it was in 2017, but it might be in 2018, there is a state waiver system within Obamacare where you can go to the Department of Health and Human Services and say, I can get Obamacare's goals done in a different way for less money. And if you know, you're know you able to persuade them, you don't have to have an individual mandate. You don't have to have the Obamacare structure. You can be doing something totally different. This is different. how Vermont wanted how Vermont to do wanted single, to do single pair pair. So one, this is already built into Obamacare. Two, This Sanders plan comes out – this is one of many kind of single-payer-ish ideas he supported over the years. It comes out in a a pre-Obamacare era and it's part of a strategy. That's actually not quite – it came out in 2013. So Obamacare already But there were versions of it for a bunch of different times. Sure, but he is still – I would say it's fair to say he supported this in a post-Obamacare Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is is a plan to expand the Obamacare waivers now? No, this is his – To blow it out? No, this is his single-payer plan from 2013. It's not. It's not. It, it scraps the exchanges. It gets Got rid it. of the exchanges. Every state moves to their own state-based single-player plan. Right. So right. So the, in that case, it's just a single-payer plan yes. that's run by states. Yes. But and there so, would be wavered. I mean, what the Clinton campaign is missing about this is that in their hypothetical, Bernie Sanders would be president. Right. right? right. It's true <laughs> that President Sanders, after creating a state-based single-payer program that includes waivers quote-unquote, could use those waivers to do something crazy, but why would he? Like, what, what, what is the actual level of concern? So the, the, conduct, the, the only point I want to make on that was that there's a history of single-payer plans and supporters, particularly in the mid-2000s, and Russ Feingold is one of these people, and others were, 
who thought maybe the way to get single payer done because so many people mistrust the federal government would be to devolve it down to the states, right? And to like have these standards and, and put it in. And this this was a political tactic for creating a more government driven healthcare system. Right. And this kind of thing where you argue that plans that people support are inconsistent with the status quo in various ways is true. But Hillary Clinton has also supported many plans. Like if you go back to her nineteen ninety four healthcare plan, she supported that and also that plan is inconsistent with Obamacare and it would require the destruction of Obamacare and other things. And I think it speaks to a place that the Clinton campaign is in, which is kind of dangerous for them. And and they clearly don't have a great answer for it at the moment, which is that they want to convince liberal voters that they are more in line with their priorities than Sanders is. But the fact is Sanders is just more liberal than Hillary Clinton is. And so now the Clinton campaign is having to rely on, on arguments to begin to break down, right? And that I think probably on them are going to end up backfiring. And it, it's because the thing I think they haven't really figured out how to do, like, like Matt says, I think they've actually released a lot of really strong policy this year and last year because this year is pretty young. But they've released a lot of ideas that are, are sound, are interesting. I'm actually particularly interested in the efforts they've made to release ideas to fight different diseases like Alzheimer's. I think that's an interesting direction for the campaign to be going in. What they have not found in a way Sanders has is ideas that in some kind of large-scale symbolic way signal a sympathy with the liberal voters are trying to attract. Right? They don't have things like breaking up the banks or single payer that act as a kind of simple heuristic that Clinton is on the liberal voter's side in a way that other even normally Democratic politicians are not. Right. And if you look at Sanders, like he's literally the only sponsor of this 2013 bill. He got no co-sponsors, <laughs> which again suggests Republicans are like not up for this conspiracy. But you know, he got no Democratic co-sponsors. No Republican co-sponsors, but liberals really like single payer. I was looking up some polling data today that found that right. finds that a, a recent poll from 2015 found that about 80 percent of Democrats like the idea of a single payer system. And even the Sanders campaign has been needling the Clinton campaign about this a little bit lately. They had an amazing troll, I would say, of the Clinton campaign where they dug up a tweet from John Podesta, who chairs Hillary's campaign from 2013 when healthcare.gov was melting down, where he said something like, you know, just signed up for Medicare in five minutes. How about single payer? I'm paraphrasing it. We'll drop the tweet in show notes. And Sanders' campaign um, found that tweet from 2013 and shared it with the note, like, if you want to work for a campaign that shares your values, (laughs) join Bernie 2016. And I mean, I think, you know, the hard part is, you know, Sanders doesn't really care about the political feasibility of the single payer. Like he is going to support it no matter what, has been pushing these bills session after session. And that gives him the flexibility to support these ideas that really resonate with the liberal base. Whereas Clinton, who is not supporting single payers, you know, hasn't endorsed those bills when they were introduced into the Senate and is kind of stuck in this place, you know, of these bizarre arguments instead of having this straightforward appeal. The thing about Hillary Clinton that people don't like, but which I think is actually admirable in many ways, is that she is a politician who is very, 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 very focused on the art of the possible and the literal and the sort of the short term. And there's this interview she does with with Kevin Sack in in 2008 of the New York Times about healthcare, where he's asking her about single payer. And what he's trying to get her to do is to either say, yes, I think single payer is a good idea in principle, or no, I don't think single payer is a good idea in principle. And she keeps insisting 
that she doesn't want to talk about single payer in principle because single payer in practice is not going to happen and is not constructive as a matter of concrete political logic to be talking about hypothetical single payer healthcare systems that she wants to talk about her healthcare plan which she believes is compatible with the interests of key stakeholders and that will provide health insurance to people who don't have health insurance and i think there is and a, might actually pass right and and she has like uh, things that are like must-haves and like-to-haves and blah, 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 blah. And I think there is something, uh, truly something admirable about this, which is that she would rather, because she cares about the uninsured and she cares about cost control in the system, she wants to have the conversation that she thinks maximizes the probability of obtaining those concrete objectives. Kevin Sack, because he's a journalist and is interested in ideas, would like to have a conversation about ideas and health policy. And I, I appreciate that quality, too. I really like those conversations as well. I like a lot of things, though. I, I like professional basketball. Um, and I, I like that Obama <laughs> likes professional basketball. But it's it's like the most important thing in a political leader is actually to have eyes on the prize and, and get things done. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think, is a kind of a, a great character. The Senate has a hundred different people in it, and it's good for them to have different characteristics. And it's in some ways very helpful to have someone who like insists on like, hey guys, shouldn't we talk about totally redoing the way pharmaceutical research is financed? Because you know we we kind of should maybe, but it is important, I think, particularly in a president, to be thinking about what can you really do, and particularly to be thinking about what things that you can do will have the effects that you want them to have, as opposed to the effects that your core supporters would like them to have. And what's weird about this Clinton attack on Sanders is that the real problem is that Going around talking about your sort of dream proposal of a total government takeover of the healthcare system is in a concrete way just going to imperil poor people's Medicaid. It's going to make it more likely that you lose the election. Well, maybe it does. I mean, on some level, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I think the one interesting thing about Sanders from this perspective is that his whole campaign acts as a kind of rolling proof for itself. Yes. I think that. One year ago, if we have a conversation about can this guy in the Senate, he's from Vermont, he identifies as a socialist, can he mount a serious challenge to Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary? The answer to that is no. Right. Sure. The answer to that is liberals better hope Elizabeth Warren runs or they better hope something happens yes. that gives Joe Biden runs maybe. But that even within Democratic Party politics, Bernie Sanders was considered an afterthought. He was considered someone too extreme even for, for the Democratic Party. Sanders's argument on some level, and I don't think he would ever make it this way, but is that a world in which Bernie Sanders gets elected is a world in which American politics does not actually operate by the rules by which we thought it did. Now, the question is, is a world in which Bernie Sanders wins a Democratic primary that world, right? And that, I think, is a much more a much I, I, more I would really encourage people to look at the situation prevailing in, in the United Kingdom right, exactly. currently. What happened in the UK is they, they tweaked their 
primary system to make it more open to, to party members. And it turned out that what the party base really wanted to do was rally behind a, a guy named Jeremy Corbyn, who was a marginal member of the Labor Caucus, who was known as a kind of a, a character who stood up for, for old-time Labor Party values and, and also for, for left-wing farm policy values. And and I I happen to think, particularly on the, on the farm policy stuff, he's much more correct on, on the merits than his Blairite opponents. I, I don't have strong feelings about UK economic policy. But, you know, people first just totally dismissed him as like, well, this isn't going to fly. But then like he was doing well. And so then they started warning the labor, mainstream labor people in increasingly hysterical terms. Like this is going to sink the party. Like we'll never win another election again. But having been proven so wrong about the Labor Party candidate selection process, their sort of election prognosticating got discredited in the minds of a lot of people. And they were like, you know, why would we believe you now? Like, you, you thought this guy could never get anywhere. So who's to say if he's unelectable? So, so he won um, the Labor Party leadership. And all the things, fair things and unfair things, that you would think would happen if a marginal person from the fringe of your caucus takes over have happened, right? Like he just – he gets very negative, hostile press because conservative media really doesn't like him, but also because he's really controversial inside his own party. So it's super easy to get – Labor Party sources talking shit about the Labor Party leader. And just like the way journalism works, that's a really bad look when you don't have the right. guys on your team on your side. And he keeps provoking intra-party fights because he's not from the middle of his party. He's from one side of And his also, and I think this is important in this kind of player, he has the personality that allows you to persist in politics for a long time being that way, which is a confrontational personality, which is something Sanders has as well. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's a – those are the kind of people who are likable – as fringe players, because it's nice to have someone who isn't a team player and will say cool stuff in the media and will stand up for weird ideas. And sometimes weird ideas are right. But it's hard to lead a political movement without being the kind of person who is good at leading political movements, which is a little bit necessarily someone who thinks a lot about crass politics and not that much about kind of like weird dreams. Now, again, I, I do want to say I, I do think it's bad when writers just sort of like pound the table with pure election analysis. Maybe I'm totally wrong about this. Maybe Bernie Sanders will be a, a huge electoral triumph, but I'm a uh, Skeptical, shall we say. And and I think it's similar in a lot of ways to the Ted Cruz problem. I mean, I, I don't like to well, analogize people. Can I, people can I the, add yeah. in one thing here, yeah. though? Because I do think it's worth saying something about this is not actually about Bernie Sanders, right? Which is it's actually about a view of the electorate, a yes. view that I am skeptical of because people are always bringing it up. They're always trying this and it, I feel like it really never works. But this view, you know, it, it basically runs off of the argument that, you know, roughly half of the population doesn't vote in midterm elections. It's hell of a lot more than that. And that, you know, there are a lot of disaffected voters out there. And then the question you get to is why are these people not right. part of the political process? And I think one answer is that they feel about American politics the way I feel about professional basketball, which is unlike the way Matt feels about it and Obama feels about it. And, and I don't know how you feel. No, about I'm it. on your team on professional basketball. So I really don't want anything to do with professional basketball. I don't want to see it on my television. I'm annoyed when my friends are always going to Wizards games so they can't hang out with me. All kinds of things about professional basketball. I just 
I just don't have any interest. I, I'm, I'm busy. I have too much on my schedule already. I do not have time to be in, invested in professional basketball. Another version of the argument, though, the one Sanders makes, one that, to be fair, Obama made to some degree. And I actually think this is a version of the argument for Trump, too, is that a lot of these voters feel that politics doesn't work for them, mm -hmm. that they're disaffected not because they're bored by it, not because it's not their interest, not because they're busy, not because they've decided to leave this up to other people while they focus on raising their children, but that they feel that in a system dominated by special interests, by lobbyists, by elite institutions, et cetera, et cetera, they don't have a voice and it isn't worth trying to have one. And that in the Democratic version of this, a kind of rumpled, cannot be bought sort of everyman candidate like Bernie Sanders, who really comes out and says, nope, I am I am here and you can believe me in this. And I think people do believe him that I am willing to fight for you, that I'm I'm not going to listen to these billionaires. I'm not going to take money from super PACs. I'm going to do I'm not going to work with super PACs and raise money for them. I'm not going to do any of these things that have led to you being locked out of American politics. And I'm going to have a policy platform filled with single payer and breaking up the big banks and this kind of hardcore populism. The, the right wing version of this is and it's very, very different, but it's Trumpism, right? It's it's doing a bunch of different things that have been locked out from the, the conservative policy consensus like building a wall and starting a, a Muslim travel ban and, and, and doing these different things that a different sort of category of the electorate feels would help them but are, are, are not being heard because of special interests. But however you look at it, and, and I don't want to equate Trump and Sanders who I think are very different kinds of players. I just think that there is a similar idea with both that election analyses based off of a view of the electorate as it currently exists are, are missing the possibility for an electorate as it could potentially exist. Now, again, I am skeptical of these arguments. I think that the problem with them is they're what every candidate always wants to believe every time, and they pretty much never happen. And I think the evidence is that most people who are not voting just do not want to be part of politics at all. They feel about politics the way I feel about professional basketball. But that's, I think, definitely the, the sort of deeper thing here. It's not just about Sanders. It's about what you believe is really happening in the American electorate and whether you believe there's a kind of – there's a disaffected majority that could be activated by the right candidate. Although I would just say that you look at Obama in 08, I, I just – I really think the evidence on this stuff is that it's hard and past candidates who have had this kind of idea. I think McGovern would be one. Just it, it really – they're not really good examples of it ever happening. Well, I, I want to stand up for Donald Trump in this regard. The problem for Obama and for McGovern and for Sanders, who all in a, one way or another have a, a similar group of early supporters, is that the demographic that those candidates appeal to is actually the most engaged, most informed people who are most likely to be participating in the system and who they would – like politicians to align more closely with their views, which is great. I mean, that's what you would expect an engaged, informed person to want to do. But they are already engaged and informed. I don't think that Donald Trump as the Republican nominee could conjure up a huge block of non-voting people and, and win an election. But I'm more willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because the demographics of the people who like Donald Trump are similar to the demographics of the people who are disengaged from the political system, less educated pe people who – it's the people who 
are backing Trump are similar to the people who aren't voting. So you could sort of imagine a world in which through social diffusion, they go and, and get them get them engaged and, and go on. It's a big leap from the current sort of Sanders constituency to the, the disaffected constituency. To win elections, for anyone to win elections, you have to be able to appeal to more than one kind of person. So you don't want to like rule it out entirely. But there's just there's very little evidence from appealing to very ideological, well-educated, very knowledgeable, very high-attention liberals that you are going to get. And I see what they're thinking. What well-informed liberals think is that what well-informed liberals want to do is really double down on the government helping poor people. And so therefore, poor people who are disaffected and disconnected from the political system should really like what they have to say. But the problem with reaching disengaged and uninformed people is that it's hard to engage and inform them. This question of like, how would you get people who aren't paying attention to politics and who've given up on the process to see you, hear your message, come to believe that you are sincere, that voting for you will be efficacious, right? Like, there's a ton of leaps in that process. And simply stating that it's a fact about the nature of ideological politics, that where Bernie Sanders stands on the ideological spectrum is highly pro-poor people, is not going to mean anything unless you're already engaged in the system, which is why Clinton has this kind of oddball fear, uncertainty, and doubt attack going on him, right? It doesn't make sense to me because I know a lot about this, but there are people who are engaged enough to vote in primaries but are still open to, like, they don't know who Bernie Sanders is. It's conceivable that some Democrat has some nutty health care plan you haven't heard of that could collaborate with Republicans. Right. And he does have a nutty health care plan you probably haven't heard of. It's just different than the one that Clinton is describing. Right. I mean, he has a lot. Right. So it's but so to go all the way down to people who aren't paying attention at all, like that's hard. Speaking of health care plans that you maybe have heard of. There's some interesting research no, there, no. about. We got it. We got to take a break. There's, oh. a, there's a corrupt system of corporate media here, <laughs> and you know we we want to tell you about a, a great great deal, and then we're going to tell you about great new research into the healthcare system. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Squarespace. Uh, I remember I, I used to have a, a website, MatthewIglesias.com, that I sort of built by hand uh, in the old days of the internet, and it was pretty good. I, I liked it, but it, it was really hard work. And then one day. My whole domain got sort of stolen by Russian spam scam artists, and they, they told me I would have to pay them $100,000 to, to get it back. And it, it turned out that a, a much cheaper and easier solution was to go to Squarespace. I, I did it. It's great. Mostly it was just easy, and it made me feel like an idiot for all the hard work I used to put into websites. You know, so you could do it yourself. The sites look professionally designed. Uh, you don't need to know any coding. If you do know how to do a little coding, you can put it in there. It's super intuitive. You know, what you see is what you get. You click here, you click there, you drag this. And if you sign up for a full year, you will even get a free domain of your own. So, uh, you know, that's a, a great option. You can start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So we are now at our white paper of the week, and this comes from, it's not even a white paper, it's actually just a real peer-reviewed research paper from the journal Health Affairs. Paper of the week. Paper of the week, Maybe we'll we call it. Maybe we start just doing that. Yeah, we'll, we'll Instead of every it. week okay. being like, it's not a white paper. <laughs> <laughs> white paper of the week, that's not a white paper. Okay, our new segment, paper of the week, begins now. Um, comes from the journal Health Affairs. So this is some research on the Affordable Care Act, and it's looking at how the Affordable Care Act has affected employment in the United States. And there was a lot of talk just a few years ago 
ago that Obamacare would reduce employment. And there were thought to be kind of two ways this would happen. The first is that there was this mandate to cover anyone who works more than 30 hours a week. So there were a lot of stories about companies from Walmart to Trader Joe's to Target reducing people down. And this down. was companies above a certain size, Companies right? that have 100 yeah. or more employees that if you had someone working 30 hours a week or more, you'd have to offer them health insurance. Or pay a penalty. Or pay a penalty. And the idea was that it, you would see companies reduce people who were at the margin, maybe 34, 35 hours a week. They'd reduce them down to 29, 28 to dodge that mandate. And that was kind of the obvious, really easy one to understand. There's a second kind of more subtle theory about Obamacare. And this is one that Democrats believe, but they'll kind of talk about in a different way. Obamacare makes it a lot easier to leave your job if you're relying on your job for health insurance. Democrats will talk about this idea of breaking job lock, that right now some people just stay in their jobs they don't really like because that's the only way they can get health insurance. They would face pre-existing conditions in the individual market. It'd be way more expensive. And Obamacare combats that a bit. It says there's no more pre-existing conditions. Anyone who wants to can buy coverage in the individual market. There's caps on how much you can charge older people. So, you know, Democrats will talk about this. Well, isn't this great? It lets people kind of pursue their passions and they can go be an entrepreneur. Republicans or conservatives will say, well, you're going to see people be less productive, that there, there's less costs associated. Right. Or just retire. Or right? just retire early. Just retire at 59, spend time with your grandkids. Exactly. So, you know, doing all these things, it makes it less easy to work. And you could spin that either way, whether that's good or bad, depending on how you feel about the issue. So we've had some research on the national level prior to this paper we're going to talk about that doesn't show hours reducing, that generally, you know, when you look at labor data, you don't see part-time work going up over the past two years. But this um, researcher, this economist, um, Kosley Simon at Indiana University, she had this idea, well, let's like dig into the margins. Like let's, you know, maybe this national averages are masking change that's happening in smaller places. So she ran a really interesting study where she looked at people on two kind of margins. One was looking at people, and you can do this through federal data sources, who right before Obamacare were working 30 to 35 hours a week and didn't have health insurance. So these are the exact sort of people you'd expect to have their hours slashed to get them under the threshold. And there she doesn't see it happening, where you know you don't see really any clear trend in part-time hours going up among this particular group that we really thought would be affected. The second group she looked at is people in states where Medicaid expanded, who were working prior to the Medicaid expansion, and said, well, you know, these are people who now that they have Medicaid, maybe they don't need to work anymore. Maybe they're going to take off a few more hours. And again, there's no decline in hours worked. So this paper, it's the best evidence I think I've seen that at least at this point, and it is an early point, we haven't seen Obamacare increasing part-time work. And the question is really, why? And I would say this isn't just a theory that, you know, Obamacare opponents had. Like the Congressional Budget Office right. had projected that Obamacare would lead to two million less jobs, not two million less people were. Anyways, they projected that people would work less because of the Affordable Care Act. And here we are in 2016. We're not seeing it. And there's these questions of, well, why are we not seeing it? And are we researching the data correctly? Will we see it in the future? And like, is this ever going to happen? Or is there actually like a lot more friction around reducing hours than a lot of these initial assumptions saw?
So, you know, one thing about this, I've been fiddling with, with my phone to get the get the chart right, but that I think a lot of this discussion sort of missed is that in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, when they measure part-time work, they, they ask people, are you working part-time because you want a part-time job or are you working part-time because you couldn't find a full-time job? And if you want a full-time job, but you can't find one. You're classified as part-time for economic reasons. And so part-time for economic reasons skyrockets whenever unemployment skyrockets for the same reason. But if you look at economic reasons as a share of all part-time workers, it goes up during recessions, but it, it maxes out at 35%, which is to say that even in the depths of a horrible recession, a large majority of part-time workers don't want full-time jobs. Uh, and in a healthy economy, it's more like 20% or fewer of the part-time workers are part-time for economic reasons. So I think one reason you don't see this kind of involuntary disemployment that's happening there is that you actually have a shortage of part-time positions relative to people's desires, that there are a lot of people who either because they are parents of young children, because they're students, or because they're old and looking to sort of trade off leisure for income without going all the way into retirement, want part-time jobs, but part-time work is not well-suited to a lot of employers' business models. And so it's, it's hard to actually get a part-time job. And so this idea that employers would involuntarily force people into part-timeism, it, it misses where the actual main sticking point in the economic system is, which is there aren't enough ways for people to only work 25 or 30 it, hours it, a week. It's funny you say that. It, it, it brings up something I thought before, which is Something we don't keep track of, to my knowledge, is full-time for economic reasons, right? You're, you're in a full-time job and you kind of wish that you weren't. And something what you're saying reminds me of is Travis Kalanick, who's the CEO of Uber, has talked about how Obamacare is really good for Uber because mm -hmm. Uber is creating this, you know, a, a, as is Lyft, as is Instacart and whatever, creating this very large uh, group of people who wanted, you know, some of them wanted part-time jobs, some of them wanted gig labor that they could do, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. But, you know, one problem with that is it can be really hard to get health care. And Obamacare has made it much easier to participate in that economy because if you've got a kid and your kid, you know, has had whatever bad asthma in the past, you don't get completely rejected when you go out for health care in the individual market. But to go back to something that Sarah was saying a moment ago, I am surprised actually by the second half of that study. So I am a little less shocked about part-time work not skyrocketing because I do think another piece that gets missed here is how much of the labor market's dynamics are actually about attracting and retaining worker talent. I think this is something that policy wonks and um, like writers don't think about all that much. But I mean, even if you're uh, an employer dealing with you know reasonably low-wage employees, there's a huge difference between really good low-wage employees and, and, and not that good ones. And within this whole discussion, you know, we're talking about these companies and you would get these arguments about whether or not these very mild kinds of employer mandates would end up changing employer behavior on healthcare. And, and the fact of employer behavior on healthcare is right now, there is no mandate to – or I'm sorry, not right now, previous to Obamacare – they didn't have to offer health care at all. They were doing that, you know, out of, quote, unquote, the goodness of their heart. But really, they were doing that out of the need to compete for labor market talent, right? There would constantly be these discussions and debates right. about... And, you know, yeah. to add to that, this is like a very vast majority of companies. I don't remember the actual number, but I think if you look at companies above it's 100 huge. employees, you know, who the mandate would apply to, we're talking like 
85, some like very high right. percentage. So they're already. Well, it's, a, it's a high percentage of workers. It's a, it's a low percentage of. Or, or what? It's 85% of what? Companies I think over of companies a certain size. Over 100 oh, or really you have get, health insurance plans. Once you get into big companies, right. the vast majority of big standard. companies. I don't know what that cutoff is I, I where you get to majority, but yeah. it's, it's there. But anyway, it's only to say that I, I do think that – I think on the, on the margin, I still kind of believe that you're going to see some of this kind of effect mm-hmm. somewhere. But I don't think it's going to be big because I, I think that you have to like look at this first from the perspective of, okay, most of these companies are already trying to offer health insurance and nobody was making them do it at all. The idea that somebody adding a little push in that direction particularly now if that is pushing the competitor companies to offer health insurance to those same employees, it's really hard to be the odd one out in that play, right? It's really hard to be the only company that is not offering health yeah. insurance because you and really get shitty people. And if you – not, I'm sorry. That's the wrong way to put You really are not going to get the best talent in your industry. And if you don't get the best talent in your industry – and this is true even in places where I think people don't always you know, think very hard about the competitiveness of the labor markets like retail and, 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 and food preparation. If you don't get good talent there, you're also going to get killed. Right. And one thing I'd add to this that I hadn't really thought through until I started looking at this paper is that there's actually like a lot of cost associated with cutting hours. So like, let's say you have someone who's been working at the Gap for however long and they work 33 hours and you want to move them to 28 hours, but they're like someone who knows how to fold the shirts like exactly right. Oh, yeah. And then you have to like, we have to reduce them down and then you have to find someone else to cover that five hours and you're like piecing together all these schedules. So it's not like, I think a lot of times in the healthcare debate and like I was probably guilty of this, you kind of like talk about it like a costless decision. Like they just reduce yeah. people down and then other people come in and fill the jobs. And that's just but there's like recruiting, there's training, there's like a lot of friction. And, and one thing I wonder about and you know on that particular force is like whether this will be like a longer term thing. Like if we wait two or three years and yeah. you know, maybe they're not reducing hours now, but you see more hiring at the lower level, you know, as we go forward, that it kind of like trickles out over years. Maybe not. Yeah, the Maybe fr- the friction of hiring is is but really incredible. As we have learned I mean, at Vox, there's yeah, I mean, like a lot of so work. We're hiring a lot. Of, we're hiring a lot of Vox, and you should go to voxmedia.com and and look at our careers page if you're interested. But we offer health insurance. We do offer health insurance. But it is the, just the time involved in sorting through resumes, doing interviews with candidates, testing candidates, training candidates up. It's it's incredibly, incredibly time consuming. And and so the idea that very small changes on the margin would make you want to do that in a very, very big way, and particularly in a way where you're losing your best employees and and having mm-hmm. to like replace them with people who are willing to take a worse deal, which probably means they do not have as much kind of presumed value on the marketplace. Like it's, it I think is often pretty unlikely. It doesn't mean you can't create a policy where that would happen. You can create very aggressive kinds of policies here. But it is to say it's the second half of that paper that mm-hmm. interested me or surprised me more because, you know, I do think that it stands to reason that particularly among people who are in their, you know, 50s, early 60s, and maybe this wasn't caught by the Medicaid thing mm-hmm. because most people incomes tend to go up as people get older. So more of the people who might quit jobs because of Obamacare would probably be getting health care insurance from exchanges in, in sort of older categories. But more than I expect sort of young people to be retiring because of Obamacare, I do expect it to be possible for, you know, older people who would have both more trouble in the marketplace, but also maybe more savings, more family to rely on, and some more capacity to and, and more sort of social acceptance for leaving their jobs to begin retiring. I've always really liked there is this YouTube video, and it's entitled like, Why This Tea Party Patriot Might Vote for Hillary. And it is this guy, and he runs a YouTube channel that is mostly videos of him shooting guns. Like, it is just, like, mostly him, like, at gun ranges shooting stuff. And he goes through this whole – at some point, he he does this video where he just is, like, talking in the camera. He's like, hey, like, it's me again. 
I'm thinking of voting for Hillary. I'm like a Tea Party guy. <laughs> I hate these people. But Obamacare, it made it so I could quit my job. And now I just like go to the gym every day. And it's awesome. And what have Republicans ever done for me? And then like he got this huge backlash from Republicans it was like, I'm not voting for Hillary in this next video. And it was kind of also an amazing thing of how powerful tribal loyalties are, even when it's in direct contradiction to people's people's self-identified interest. But but it was a guy offering testimony of exactly that kind of labor supply decline, right? That mm -hmm. he was working. He didn't want to be working. He had health problems, so he couldn't get health care on the individual market. He wasn't old enough yet to qualify for Medicare. Obamacare came along, gave him the option to, to drop out of the labor force, and he took it and was really happy about the outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, on some level, I think that's actually a public policy win. I think we're a really rich country, and you know, our primary goal in life should not be making people work until they die. But at the same time, um, I wouldn't be surprised over longer periods of time to see that become a little bit more common. So the thing about this that, that complicates it is that when, when the CBO put out this original estimate about its anticipated rise in early retirements, the past 15 years had seen a growing labor force participation rate among people over the age of 55. So there was like momentum behind that. And labor force participation among people over the age of 55 has simply continued to increase. So it makes it a little bit hard to even assess exactly what it is that that forecast from the CBO means, right? If I had written that forecast down and was now asked to uh, defend it, I would say, well, look, Labor force participation has grown more slowly among this demographic than it would have had we not passed Obamacare. And like, I don't know, man. You know, <laughs> maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. Uh, and like, I asked uh, leading labor market experts, why is labor force participation among over fifty-five year olds been going up since the early nineties? And they said, well, it's because people are in better health. But so then I asked, well, why was it going down in the sixties and seventies? Like, was health deteriorating then? And they said, well, it's because medical care was created. And it's like, well, okay, but they didn't get rid of me. You know, it's so people have reasons, but I'm not sure these are actually that well understood. There is some research on it, but it is not an extensive literature. Right. Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, on the CBO report, it essentially cites two papers, and both of them are, are Medicaid studies. One um, is Craig Garthwaite at Northwestern studying Tennessee's Medicaid expansion, and I'm blanking on the second one. But it's basically a body of research. It's small, and it's developing, and I think it's going to develop more with the Affordable Care Act affording more um, research opportunities. But we actually just don't have like a great sense of this relationship. It's kind of similar to you know another issue I've looked into, how increases in premiums affect wages. Is this body of research where, the, where, where it's pretty conflicted and you can find papers to support either side of the argument? One thing I would push back on a little bit on Ezra, on what will happen with early retirement, you know, this is also, this is definitely like, and any anyone who wants to email me with like, well, sample size equals one. Like you can do that. But I think <laughs> of my dad, Boom. who's yeah, <laughs> my dad, who's you know, he's in his um, he's he's going to turn sixty later this month. He's like getting close to retirement, and you know, he's looked. He, he relies on my. He's a contractor, so he relies on my mom for health insurance, and he's actually you know looked at the exchange, and what he's found is that the insurance there is like much less robust than what he can get through employer based mm -hmm. insurance. Where you know, when you look at the Obamacare markets, they definitely are coverage, but it's often the coverage with a six thousand dollar deductible with a 
limited network. But your employer with, isn't offsetting. Yeah, and, and your employer cost. is not paying a big chunk yeah. of your premium. So especially if you're um, the Obamacare rules, they allow the marketplace to charge older people three times as much as young people. So you could end up with a pretty expensive premium, even though, you know, I definitely agree there's more of a safety net. Like now at least you will be allowed to buy something, but it probably is more expensive than what you'd buy at work and it's probably not as good coverage. So that's might be another mediating factor pushing back against early retirement is that it's not just all health insurance plans are created I, I, equal. I, think in, I in agree the with that. In of the weeds, I, I, I think we should spell out the, the age rating point oh, uh, sure. a little bit more. So yes. in an employer-based health plan, right, the rule is that the, the insurance pool has to take all comers equally. Uh, they can charge you more if you're covering spouses and kids and things like that, but they can't delve into the demographics of who you are specifically, right? So like a 23-year-old guy gets charged the exact same premium as like a much older person or, 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 or whatever else, even though we know from an insurance underwriting perspective that like that's not the right, right. way to do it. That's a, that's a legal rule. So in the individual market, it didn't used to be like that. You could just do anything. You could charge anyone anything. Or reject them. Or reject them. And so it didn't work, right? And so what they do in the Affordable Care Act is they constrain the insurance company's ability to do underwriting. And so one thing is, is they can't charge young women more than they charge young men. Even though young women have more health care costs because they tend to have babies. Right. Uh, Obama, Democrats tout this and they say, like, being a woman is no longer a pre-existing condition. And it's sort of designed to make people think that there was discrimination in the employer-based pool that never existed, I think. But at any rate, they, they got rid of that. But you can do premium rating based on age in the individual market. So you can charge an old person more than you charge a young person, which you can't do in the employer-based market. But wait, oh, but Obamacare limited how much you can yes. get. Yes, yes. So it, it, it limited it, to three to one. Right. So right. you could see but in the three pre- to one right. is a lot. Right. Yeah, but but, but you could see in the pre-Obamacare right. market like ten to one, yes. and, and yeah. it's still you know it's still not. If you looked at the actual age band, like how much older people really cost, how much young people really cost, like it's not young old people are paying less than their fair share and young people are yeah, paying this, more. This has made healthcare more for young people. And actually, if you look right. at a bunch of the Republican plans, um, mm-hmm. one thing they do is they will raise that up to five to one, right. which I think is interesting. But so, That's a political economy question given but, who supports whom in politics. But so relative to the old individual market, the Obamacare market is very friendly to old people. Right. But relative to the employer-based market, yeah, totally. the Obamacare market yeah, that, is very That is 100 percent true. So if you were looking at who would take advantage of Obamacare to drop out of employer-based health care and go on to exchanges, it's not that favorable to an old person. But old people are the kind of people who might decide to retire early, right? You're not going to retire early at 26 just because you can get health care now because you're 26, right. you need money. But it's a 26-year-old who might get a better health care deal by doing that. So in that sense, it's like a pretty well-designed policy. If they had gone for zero age rating, which I think would have fit some of the political logic of what they're trying to do, the economics would have gotten, I think, worse. Really right? out of whack. Right. And so it's having that age rating, which is like less age rating than insurance companies would want to do, so it works for an older person who needs the exchange, but still much more age rating than they do in the employer market, so it's not a great idea for an old person to hop into the exchanges. I, I think that's like a, to, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but it works well. To pull out one sort of big theme of, of, of this conversation, underlying a lot of what we've talked about here is that 
there can be a tendency when talking about Obamacare or really any policy to talk about it as if it's the only thing going on, right? To talk about, look at its rules around part-time work and you got to cover people at more than 30 hours or it's doing age rating or whatever. Then you look at that and you say, okay, like what will that do? And like obviously you'd push employers to make more workers part-time workers or push old people to drop out of the – or aging people to, to drop out of the labor force and, and take Obamacare. But the big point is that Obamacare is actually, in terms of how all this stuff works, one of many, 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 many forces driving decision making. And it's often not even a very big one. And so its effect is going to be very much on the margin. And oftentimes that margin is going to be small. And even as we're seeing in these studies, you know, imperceptible. I do think one one thing that I've always said is just really wrong about the Obamacare conversation is that I think the Obamacare conversation like misstates the magnitude of Obamacare by a lot, right? Like you, you know, you talk about it being a government takeover of healthcare, a six of the economy, which it, it really isn't either one of those. Obamacare is smaller than a lot of previous healthcare plans, like the Clinton plan in '94 or the Nixon plan before that. Much not to say nothing of single payer, and a lot of this stuff, it, it matters. And you know, not saying not saying it doesn't, but. It just – it's not going to reshape the labor market. It just isn't of that kind of size. What an exciting headline to run. I know, Obamacare, right? it's on the margins. <laughs> Seems like, like a good good final weeds point, though. I think so. Absolutely. Feel free to ignore this issue entirely. <laughs> the no, good thing no, about no. the podcast medium is by now, you've already reached the end of the episode. So it doesn't matter if you find the conclusion unsatisfactory. <laughs> what matters is that you enjoyed the journey by which we got here. And, and made you, you want to subscribe. And that you rate us highly on the iTunes. Um, and if you have further thoughts, that you email us, weeds at box.com. Um, and with that, you know, I hope you have a great afternoon. We'll see you next week. Bye.